Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea. This is the Sly Flares chat done on 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Times on Sundays. And this is done before I do my Lazy DM prep show. And we talk about all things D&D. So we're just going to talk about whatever I have on my list or whatever people in the Twitch chat want to talk about. And then uh, later I cut it and edit it and hopefully put in a table of contents and make it available to you fine watchers on YouTube or listeners on the Sly Flares podcast. So, uh, I've got a list of things to talk about. I made it this morning. This is a loose list of things I thought might be interesting. I only really have four today. It's a pretty pretty thin list, so we can, we can add more stuff as people want to uh, in the chat if we want to talk about anything. Uh, that last one there sitting on the bottom of the list is certainly going to get people's interest, probably. I don't know if I get people's interest. It could also be very, very tiresome. But I thought it would be interesting. I'll talk about that one. From an indie indie publisher's point of view, I thought that would be interesting because I've had some I've had some conversations with some independent publishers about how we feel about six e and what we can you know how do we prepare for it? Spoilers, you can't really prepare for it, but you can be resilient, and so we'll talk about what resiliency looks like in this industry as a small independent publisher. So scaling adventures, somebody I think this came up in a uh, this came up on Discord, uh, I think. Or maybe it was on a YouTube comment. I guess now so many different ways I'm talking to people. It's hard to keep up. That um, how do you scale adventures like when you have three players instead of six? So uh, it was on a, it was, it was a YouTube comment. And the question was about how do you scale battles? How do you scale up an adventure like Ghost of Saltmarsh if you only have three players? And my, I think I linked back to an article that I wrote recently and something that I've been, let's see, Sly Flourish. Uh, called The Dials of Monster Difficulty. And I, I feel like th these are kind of the biggest, easiest, fastest, most impactful ways that you can sort of scale battles both up and down without a lot of work because I'm lazy. And those those ways are increased, and they're, they're kind of in order of, I guess they're not necessarily in order of impact, but pretty close to an order of number of impact, which is like starting off with the number of monsters. So if you want to scale a battle up or down, and if you have fewer or more players, the easiest way to do it is just increase or decrease the number of monsters. And, you know, a, an, an easy battle will generally be anytime there are fewer monsters than there are characters, and a harder battle will be if there's more monsters than there are characters. There are, of course, there are, of course, uh, limits. Badfish644 just joined Patreon. Thank you for that. By the way, this show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you ad-free by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Doing so gets you access to all kinds of exclusive things. I'm actually going to be putting out a new adventure probably in the next couple of weeks, certainly by, the, uh, uh, by, by early June. And um, it's already previewed up on the uh, Patreon Discord chat channel if you wanted to see it there. And uh, yeah, so I really appreciate it. I actually, I saw, I was having breakfast and I saw three new patrons had joined and I was very excited about that. So if you were the, if you were two of the three, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And thanks, everyone else should thank you too, because I don't have to put ads up on the show uh, in order to support the show. So yeah, thank you for that. And um, yeah, also other ways, if you, if you are enjoying what you're seeing or uh, listening to, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel and get the latest videos. I'm putting out a lot more videos uh, in the in the in the future, there you're going to see you you probably have seen a increase in videos, particularly in short videos. That again is thanks to the patrons, and uh, you're going to see probably more videos like this. So you can both subscribe. There's so many different ways to get stuff from Sly Flourish these days. 
you can subscribe on YouTube. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish podcast. Put it on your favorite podcatcher. And you can uh, join the uh, Sly, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter on, available on slyflourish.com. So, yeah, lots of different things. Uh, RSR70 says, repercussions of the John Fork collaboration? No, um, that was a project that we had done about a month ago. This is just kind of, I don't even remember where I got the idea, but I was like, let me do short videos. I, I think I've, I, I have another hobby, which is audiophile gear. And I've watched more audiophile people putting up real short videos that kind of talk about specific things. And it, like, it looks like really nice and it was fun to listen to and it's short. And boy, those are popular. The short videos are very are much more popular than my other stuff. So you're going to see a lot more short videos in the future. So yeah, lots of different ways to get to, 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 to get your Sly Flourish fix. Subscribe to the newsletter on slyflourish.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe to the uh, podcast. The YouTube and the podcast are pretty much the same thing, so you can kind of pick which one of those you like best. Uh, join the Sly Flourish Discord if you want to chat with other uh, Lazy Dungeon Masters and chat with myself. I'm there every day. And uh, yeah, I think those are probably the best. Oh, and the Patreon, right? Go patreon.com slash slyflourish and uh, actually support the show with a little bit of scratch. Yeah, so if, you're, if you want to scale up battles up or down, the easiest way to do it is to... Uh, increase or decrease the number of monsters. That's that's number one. That's hard to do on the fly, right? You can do it right before a battle starts. You can kind of gauge whether or not it should be two guys or 12 guys or whatever. Uh, but once the battle started, you, it's hard to kind of add or remove guys, right? I mean, you can do it with like waves of people. No, another wave of monsters comes in, but the players they get wind of like, oh, it was too easy and now it's suddenly hard, right? And same way if you have like guys run away or guys are like, okay, you guys take care of this. We're taking off. They can tell that you're tweaking the battle on the fly. So it's hard to do that on the fly. Easier on the fly is increasing or decreasing the monster's hit points. And um, I highly recommend keeping your hand on the hit point dial. It's a good, easy way to shift things up or down. You are within spec of D&D by going to the lowest amount that a hit die equation will allow for or the highest amount that a hit die equation will go for. And that is usually a very widespread an example if we go to D&D Beyond and we put out Ogre. Da, da, da. Your Ogre has 59 average hit points, but it's 70, 10, plus 21, which means it could be 31 hit points instead of 59, or it could be as many as 91 hit points. So think about that. 31 to 91 hit points is a wide variance on hit points for an Ogre to have. But that is within that hit die that hit die range. And you, you know, you're still within bounds of, of, their, of their specs. Uh, I don't necessarily believe in the, in the need to be in or out of bounds uh, when, or the, the need to be in bounds or the desire to not be out of bounds when you're running your game. When you're publishing stuff or you're playing like an Adventures League, that's a different story. But if you are running your own game, I think you have free reign to do pretty much everything you want in order to support the pacing and the fun of the game. And an example of that is your willingness to do stuff with uh, the damage, which are the next two dials. So the first dial is number of monsters. Second dial is number of hit points. Uh, third is number of attacks. And boy, if you want a big impact, give an ogre two attacks instead of one. And now he's doing 26 damage instead of 13, right? Real high-level ogres like ogre warriors or ogre champions could do three attacks, right? Bang, bang, bang. You know, it's now 39 damage that you're doing. Big way to have an impact on damage. But another way is this fourth dial, which you can tweak a little bit more, which is the amount of damage that a monster inflicts. And you could do things like have him set his club on fire. And now he does an extra D6 fire damage, maybe 2D6 fire damage. Or what if he's possessed by a necrotic entity and it's, and it's channeling his great club with necrotic, he's got glowing violet eyes and there's this big cloud of necrotic energy around his club. And now he's slamming it down and doing an extra, you know, nine, you know, 2D8 necrotic damage. Um, and now nine on top of 13 is a lot, right? So, you know, now you're doing 22 damage instead of 13. And then you can scale it up 
even more. So now if you want to take an ogre and, uh, oh, the Rakam says, I miss fourth edition rolls. Let's, we will talk about rolls. I think, do you, Rakam, do you already know how I feel about rolls? If not, I can talk about rolls because um, I have feelings. And um, so you can take an ogre and you can make it a relatively weak ogre if you need to. I, I tend not to think, I think it's better if you know ahead of time an ogre is going to be a hard challenge. I wouldn't recommend using an ogre. I'd recommend using something like an orc or something or a bugbear or something that is more applicable to the to the current power level of the characters. But if you need to lower down ogres, mostly for the pace of the game, lowering hit points is fine. Uh, lowering damage, maybe. But if you have to lower the damage on an ogre, you've you've over you've over you know you've gone overboard already. Usually it's about scaling them up. And for scaling them up, you could go as far as 91 hit points on an ogre if you don't want to cheat. I like to cheat and just say, you know what? We're going to give him 120 hit points. We're going to double, essentially double his hit points. And now he's really strong. I think you're a fan, but I'm not opposed to hearing your thoughts on rolls again. I am not a fan of rolls, so we'll talk about that. So doubling the hit points is great. Uh, you you know, give him multiple great club attacks and then add necrotic damage. So if you have like a necro-infused ogre champion, right? You can double its hit points, and now he's got 120 hit points. You can give him multiple great club attacks. Maybe he does two attacks, and maybe he does an extra 2d8 necrotic damage on each attack, nine damage. So now he's doing 22 points, two attacks, 44 damage, 120 hit points. Now he's way higher in challenge rating, too. He's probably on the more challenge four or five ratio, right? But you don't have to worry about challenge rating because you know your players and your characters' powers more than anybody else does. You will know... Do they do tons of damage, right? If, you're, if your group does tons of damage, you know hit points are going to be a good dial. If you know that they have a lot of damage mitigation, I have a group where they have four out of five of them can heal and have healing word, and they have a Twilight Cleric who is mitigating roughly six to nine hit points of damage to the whole group every turn. So throwing a lot of extra damage on monsters is not a problem in that case, and it makes them feel challenged, right? And you don't do it all the time because you're not there to punish the players for the choices they made. But if you want a battle to feel hard, that's a way to make it feel hard. So those are those are the four dials. Have more monsters, increase or decrease hit points, increase or decrease number of attacks, and increase or decrease damage. Sure, if you have like one monster, you can add legendary actions. The problem is legendary actions are another one of those where people uh, can tell that it's different. I would, I would, if you were going to do something like create a legendary, and you can certainly do it, and it's not hard. Uh, I would declare it ahead of time that this is the legendary necrotic ogre champion, right? And then that way the the players know, oh, this guy's a legendary. You know, let's shift how we're going to face it because he's so powerful, right? I I broadcast legendary monsters. Uh, I don't usually, because you, you don't want to pull back the curtain too far and make it look like you're changing things on the fly. You want it to feel solid and, and stable. So I usually, if I wanted to change the action economy, I'd have more of them, right? I would I would put... Before I would start making a single guy legendary just to deal with the action economy and not because of the area of story, uh, I would instead um, just have multiple ogre, necrotic infused ogre champions. And that makes sense. Uh, quickly talking about roles, I actually don't like roles uh, from fourth edition. So the roles in fourth edition, if you look back in old fourth edition monsters, monsters had things like lurker, controller, striker, brute, and soldier, I think. And the idea was you you could kind of, it was sort of paint by numbers. You could tell like, okay, I can have three brutes and, oh, so those roles are different. Elite and solo, minion, normal, elite, and solo, I think are different than role. And there, there's two, okay, so let's go back. So look, for those not familiar with uh, fourth edition, there were, there were two different things that sort of defined, I guess three, there were three things that sort of defined a monster's place in a battle. 
its level, which was based on the character level, so you didn't have challenge rating, you had a level, a monster level, which was roughly equivalent to a character level. You had its type, which was like, and, and it's a kind of size almost, with difficulty, I guess, which was minion, meaning they had one hit point, and the minute you hit them, they died. Uh, normal guys, which they never really defined, but it was anything that wasn't a minion and a leader or a solo. And that normal was r roughly the equivalent of a single character, right, in action economy. You had elite, which was roughly the equivalent of two characters. And you had solo, which was roughly the equivalent of four characters. So you had monsters that scaled up and down with level, but then they scaled horizontally by... Um, by minion, normal lead, and solo. And I, I do like, I did like that. I do like that. And I, I kind of miss it. They do the th same thing in 13th Age. They have, um, they have mooks, normal monsters, double strength monsters, and triple strength, or large and huge, right? And a large monster was roughly the equivalent to two characters. A huge monster was roughly the equivalent to three. And that worked really well. And the nice thing is you had levels, so you knew what level a monster was, and you say a monster that's the level of the characters is roughly equivalent. And then you had sort of how many characters it accounted for in action economy and in damage output. That works really well, and I like that, and I do miss it. it there's a reason why you can't have that in fifth, and that's because monsters in 5th edition are intended to cover a much wider range of challenge levels than a monster in 4th or a monster in 13th age. And part of the reason of that is because the math is flat in 5th, which means an ogre can be really, if you think about an ogre, an ogre can be a solo monster if you're facing level 1 or level 2 characters, right? Like a... An ogre is a really hard monster to face at level one, right? It is really, in fact, it'll probably crush level ones because it does a lot of damage. 13 damage is enough to knock out a character in one hit. Level two, it's a pretty good solo monster. It probably counts for two or three three to four characters on its own because it's got 59 hit points. That's a lot of hit points and does 13 damage a hit. So it's kind of a solo at level one and two. When you get to like levels three, two or three, uh, it's kind of like an elite right? It, it sort of fills in the place of two monsters. So two ogres would be pretty hard to face for level three characters. Level four characters, maybe two or three are pretty hard. And then, but then when you get to like 11th or 12th or 13th, oh, so then, so then, then you get to roughly fifth or sixth level and an ogre is roughly the same power level of a single character, right? A single, uh, if we figure that out, fifth, yeah, about fifth or sixth level is about the equivalent of a single character. And then when you get to like 10th, 12th level, maybe a little higher, they essentially become minions where like ogres are so weak compared to 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th level characters that you can wipe out whole swaths of ogres with like single spells. Like 60 damage is still a lot of damage to do at that level. But you're, you know, a fighter can one shot them, right? A fighter can pull a bunch of attacks and do probably that kind of damage and knock out an ogre in a single hit or a single volley of attacks. So what it means is if you think about an ogre at its current power level and the current stats that it's got, it really falls into all four of those roles depending on the level of the characters without having to change it. So, you know, so, so that's... And then, of course, when you add the dials in there, you can certainly turn into a minion. If you take an ogre and you lower it to 31 hit points, well, that's fireball range practically, right? So a fireball can wipe out a whole range of ogres if you, if you hit it with, with really, really low ones. So... Yeah, so that's why there aren't roles in fifth, or not roles exactly, minion, normal, lead, and solo. The, the roles that I'm thinking of, which is another element of fourth edition, was the type of monster from its role in combat. And that's where you had lurkers and strikers, and I don't remember them all, uh, but you had soldiers and brutes and controllers. 
you know, there was all these, there was a bunch of different types of monsters. And the intent there was that you could tell that when you're building a battle, you know that like brutes are going to act a certain way. All brutes are going to act like brutes and all strikers are going to act like strikers. And you know what they do. Strikers are going to be weak, but they're going to, they're going to drop if you kill them. Uh, they're going to be weak if you hit them, but they're going to hit you really hard. Controllers are going to ma manage the battlefield, right? They're going to do things that they're going to make the battlefield difficult to change. Brutes are big bags of hit points that hit hard, but are not hard to hit. Soldiers are hard to hit um, and hit at a medium damage, and they usually protect groups uh, that are there. So it meant that when you looked at any given monster in the fourth edition monster manual, you knew roughly how it was going to act and what it was going to bring to a battle. So that is... Lots of people really like that. I, I don't because it's an abstraction layer between me and the fiction of the game. I'm not concerned about whether it's a brute or a soldier. I care that it's an ogre and what ogres do in, in uh, you know, both what ogres do in battle and what ogres mean in the game. And I, I don't really need to know how it's going to act because I'm going to have to read the stat block anyway and figure out what it's doing. So I, I, I don't really find a lot of value in having its role, its combat role. I know I'm, I think, I don't know if I'm in the minority. I'm in the minority people who like fourth edition because they like that that part of it. There are other parts of fourth edition I really like, but that was not one of them. Uh, I do like the minion elite solo idea, but I can see why it doesn't exist in fifth. So, so there we go. Psyche CH says, big fan, thank you. Glad, glad you could be here. We got a lot of people here this morning. Man, 9, 9.30 on Sunday, and there's a good deal of people. Yeah, I should bring up, The Monsters Know What They're Doing by Keith Amon is a fantastic book. Uh, let's go to Amazon. And uh, Monsters Know. So very popular book. People love this book. Uh, the Monsters Know What They're Doing by Keith Amon. You can also go to Keith's page, themonstersknow.com. And... Uh, Oh, let's see. I haven't read. Ooh, I haven't read about why he hasn't been around. So um, there's a link to his site, and uh, I will add a link to his book. Uh, so what I like about how Keith Amon looks at it is he very much looks at... Uh, oh, thanks for the raid. Uh, Keith very much looks at how, how a monster fits into the world. He looks at their stats, but it's not a book of tactics. A lot of people think that like, it's just a book of monster tactics. And, but really, it's about how the monster plays in the world and what it means. And he looks at the stats and what the stats mean about the behavior of the monster. And I think that's a fascinating way to do it. It's a really great, you know, he's a, he's a very smart dude. He found a really cool angle on this, on this, on this, uh, on this idea, on this topic, and wrote about it. Um, I've had the honor of meeting him and playing. I actually ran a game for him at PAX a couple years ago. And uh, really good guy, and 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 thinks. I think I had him on uh, the deep dive too. I think we have a pretty sure there's a. It's funny because like at first I was sort of like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this because I'm not all about the tactics in D and D anymore. But then I read it and I'm like, no, this is great. There it is, Keith Amon. If you want to enjoy, there's a video where Keith and I talk about monster tactics. So you know, all kinds of good, all kinds of good stuff. So I think we've talked about that. So the answer, you know, when we talk about scaling adventures, uh, I, I often think about the dials that you can scale adventures most of the time by de increasing and decreasing the number of monsters, dorking with the hit points, giving them more or less attacks, uh, and, and changing the amount of damage that they do in attacks. And boy, you can change combat in almost any way you can change. You can take an ogre from level one all the way up to like level 10 or 12 just by tweaking those dials. So good stuff. Uh, I didn't realize until my friend Teos mentioned it that um, Candlekeep Mysteries actually has uh, a description. Where is Candlekeep Mysteries? How come it's why is it all the way at the bottom? Why is this stuff not in alphabetical order anymore? So in Candlekeep Mysteries in the beginning, 
it talks about how to, let's see, 46 players. You can adjust it for larger or smaller groups as well as for characters of higher or lower levels by swapping one monster or trap for another, changing the number of foes in an encounter, and adjusting the DCs to make important tasks easier or harder for the character to accomplish. I actually don't agree with some of that. I mean, I mean who am I? I guess I'm, I can disagree with anything I want. And the adjusting DCs, this is something Teos and I have talked a lot about, where it's like a ladder shouldn't change its difficulty based on the person climbing it. Like a ladder is either hard or not. But I can see where if you're changing a bat, you know, changing it like a whole tier, you probably want to change some DCs around. Um, I think this is an oversimplification. I think I think when we talk specifically, I, I like the dials because the dials are specific. So this is sort of like, of course, you can change things, right? And that's pretty much all it says is change things, like swapping a monster or trap for another. Yeah, OK. But how about the dials right it doesn't talk about the dials so anyway it was interesting that it has something about that in candlekeep mysteries I, I didn't realize it until Teos mentioned it and then i went back and looked and there it was so so that was pretty interesting we've talked to death about that um so maybe we'll move the 60 conversation up to after van richten whoops so van richten so i uh last week and i think i, I talked about this a little bit yesterday too uh last week i uh made fun of polygon's article uh about van richten because it had the title van richten's guide to ravenloft is the biggest best DD book of this generation and i was like man that's some marketing you know boy that's a marketing title like how much did they have to get paid for that title right and i i made fun of it and then i i so i had i kept saying like you know what i'm going to do i'm going to wait till i get the paper copy but unfortunately my paper copy is delayed i'm not getting it until this coming week but i do have it on DD beyond so I, I'm like, okay, let me let me dive in here and take a look a little bit about about Van Richten's guide. Is Van Richten's guide all at the bottom now? I started taking a look through of it, through it, and I don't know if it's the best book of this generation, but it's pretty great. It's a pretty great book. I've I haven't hit anything yet where I've looked at it and said, I don't like that, or I don't need that, or that's boring, or they could have done it differently, or I would have done it differently, which is always a, that's always a, of course you to do things differently, right? Like, I start with the monsters, and I was like, let me take a look at the monsters, right? You got a, you got a nice bestiary in here, let's take a look at the bestiary, and of course I look at it and I go, huh, let me take a look at a couple of these. I'm like, ooh, greater spawn, greater star spawn emissary, let's take a look at that guy, right? And, and I'm like, okay, huge aberration, CR 21, that's beefy, 290 hit points, that's reasonable. Three attacks, okay, three, three, you can make any three attacks, which means any of these attacks can be one of the three attacks, including unearthly bile, if you can do it, that's interesting. Uh, how much does it do? A plus 14 uh, to hit, 13, uh, 20 piercing, and thir 33 points of damage. That's 99 damage with a multi-attack. That's a lot of damage. I mean, CR 21, I get it, but it's still, that 99 damage is a lot. Holy cow, legendary actions, teleports 30 feet, and, and makes one attack. Again, it can do any of these three, right? And again, it could do another 33 per legendary. So that's 198 points of damage this guy can do in a round. That is a lot of damage for a monster. And I was like, yeah, yeah. and, and Rakam says it's, it's way stronger than other CR21 monsters. It kind of depends on the CR21, but it feels like that is way higher than a, a, another legendary monster. And then I go and I like to pick on, this is where you get into monster design. I like to pick on poor Hootagen. Hootagen is a monster from Morden Canaan's, and he was one of the monsters I looked at. I'm like, what are they doing? So first of all, his stat block is enormous. It's way too big, right? Then I look at him. Hey, look, also CR21. 
right? Same, same equivalent. Let's put these two next to each other a second, right? Same, same CR as the greater star, star spawn emissary. And yeah, he's got a ton of stuff he can do. Look at all these like lightning bolts and wall fires. He can do all, you know, at will lightning bolts. Okay. Dispel magic. He can do heal, which is a lot, I think. Symbol for hopelessness, I guess. I don't know what that does. And then you look at his attack. It makes four attacks, but it's very specific. One with his bite, one with his claw, one with his mace, and one with his tail. Okay, so claw is 17 damage. Bite is 15 damage plus 10 poison. Although, frankly, poison damage is pretty much useless at high levels because um, you got spells like... There's a lot of ways to get rid of poison damage. A lot of immunity to poison damage. So poison is a rough way. It's a, not a good way to balance a monster with poison damage. So 17, 15, 19, you know, and his, ma his, his mace is only 15 points of damage, right? Um, so he's got regen, somebody says. Yeah. Uh, 20 hit points at the start of his turn. But if he takes radiant damage, it fun doesn't function. So it's, that's, not, that's not the equivalent. Like 200 hit points instead of 300? I would much rather have 300 hit points than 20 points of regeneration. Because they're not only going to last three rounds anyway, which means Maxi's going to get his 60. And he's probably going to get hit with radiant damage because a paladin's going to love hitting this dude. Right. And yeah, I get he can fly around and teleport and all this other nonsense, right? You use teleport action. And then a legendary action, he can attack with his mace, which does 15 damage. Like that's useless. Lightning storm does 18 damage. That's nothing. This guy should be doing way, way, way more damage. It's CR 21, right? Fearful voice. Look at this whole big block about fearful voice when almost every character that's going to be dealt with has an immunity to fear. That's a whole wasted section right there, right? In my, in my opinion. So I, I just, I compare Hootagen to the greater star spawn emissary and certainly at high levels, this guy's way harder, right? And way better and probably mu much more of an actual level 20 or CR 21 challenge than Hootagen is. The thing that drives me bananas about Hootagen is if we take a look at uh, Pit Fiend, right? Cause he's basically a Pit Fiend, right? Right, a Pit Fiend is CR 20, but has 300 hit points. What happened to Hootagen's hit points? Where'd all his hit points go, right? Like. And, and, you know, he does same damage. So you can tell he's kind of a pit fiend because he's making he's doing the same kind of pit fiend attack here. But, like, pit fiends are stronger, right? Hootagen, you know, he got weak. So he needs, like, 300 hit points instead of 200. He at least needs to be a pit fiend with extra kickers. And, he's, and he doesn't, right? Did somebody say that he summons guys? I don't see anything about summoning. And the problem is, like, any uh, you throw all these actions in here, right? You give all these spellcasting things. And you give this, you know, like he can't do any of this stuff because, you know, he only has the one action a turn. You know, you know even with the, oh, the star spawn summons, summons monsters. Yeah, boy, that's that's terrible. Uh, yeah, something gibbering mouthers, right? Yeah, look at that. I didn't even read this part. The emissary expels bile that splashes all creatures in a 30-foot radius sphere centered on a point within 120 feet of the emissary. Each creature in that area makes DC 23 saving throw, taking 55. And remember, that's one attack. And I think he can make that as part of his multi-attack on a damage saving throw. For each creature that fails to save, a gibbering mouther appears in an unoccupied space in the surface within 30 feet. Gibbering mouther acts right after the emissary, gaining plus seven bonus to attack and damage rolls and fighting until they are destroyed. Wow. Wow. Isn't it an attack? It's under the actions. I guess. Oh, I see. It doesn't have an act. It doesn't have the attack thing. So it can only do either lashing maw or psychic orb or can do this. This is an action. You are correct. I am. I am wrong. Think how bad that would be if he did both. Ooh. But it can kind of, because he can do that once, and then he can make three attacks using his legendaries. Pretty awesome. It's a CR21 elite instead of a CR21 minion. Right. Yeah, kind of. Exactly. Like, which one's the elite and which one's the minion, right? But Hootagen's a named monster, right? He's, he should be freaking badass. He should have 600 hit points. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, my, my point there is, like, the, the, the variability of monster 
actual difficulty is not matched with CR very well. CR is kind of, you know, I think anybody that's spent a lot of time can recognize that CR is a joke, but I think it gets really bad when you get up into the high CR monsters. And I, most of the time, I just want to see big numbers. I just want to see big damage. That's, that's all, I, you know, that's what I care about. Back to Van Richten's. So I looked at the monsters. And I'm like, okay, these monsters are really good. They're cool. They have teeth. Somebody else mentioned the, um, you know, I, I was like, ooh, vampire mind flare. But then I also said that they have one called Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Where's that one? CR8. So this is like a sub-vampire, right? 85 hit points. I was I was pretty good with this guy. I would have liked more attacks. Nosferatu makes two claw attacks followed by one bite attack. That's cool. So it can make more attacks. Uh, the claw attacks are only nine. I would definitely throw some necrotic damage on these claw attacks to make it more vampire-like. Um, and then the bite is nine plus seven. This is not, it's not a lot. Of, for CR8, that's not a lot of damage. Uh, it's got the vomit blood, which is pretty gory. Other than that, it's kind of like a vampire spawn, right? It's a, it's sort of a, a beefier vampire spawn. I, I think it's under, I, I think the damage output is, is low. Cause that's what 18, 27, uh, 27 plus 11, 38, 38 for a CR8. I don't know. That feels a little low. Um, yeah. So it sits between the vampire spawn and the full vampire, which is kind of cool. I would probably, you know, again, tw- turn those dials, right? Jack the dial and give him some necrotic damage. It's very easy to give vampires necrotic damage and you can make, give as many as you want. You know, 2d6, they do an extra 7 necrotic damage. 1d6, right? Maybe it only does 1d6. It does an extra 3 points of necrotic damage. Or 2, or 4, or 8, you know, 16d6 extra necrotic damage. Sure, why not? But I think that's cool. Cool cool piece of art, too. Like, oh, look at that guy. Definitely looks like Nosferatu, the original uh, from the movie. So I really dig it. Well, zombie, where's the zombie stuff? There's a zombie horde thing, right? Isn't there? Uh, there's a zombie clot. That's gross. Swarm of zombie limbs is pretty cool. Let's look at the zombie clot. Right. Oh, that's gory. Look at that. It's a big, you know, it's like the Rat King, only it's made of zombies. That's pretty awesome. 104 hit points, two slam attacks, 18 damage, flesh and tomb, undead fortitude, you know, con save, and its con is high, so it's going to be really hard to kill this thing. You know, deathly stench. Any creature that starts a turn within 10 feet, succeed on a DC 14 saving throw, or, ta- or be poisoned. That's terrible, right? You know, this is this is nasty. So I, I like it. Anyway, my point is the monsters in this, there's, you know, not a ton, but there's a lot. Like it's not, I don't know how many, I can't count, but you know, fair number of monsters, right? That's great. So, you know, we got some crunch, right? It's not exactly a new Morden Kanan kind of book, but it's not far off. But this book has something else that I think is more important, right? And the thing that's more important, so I, I didn't look at chapter one on character stuff because everyone in the world is going to be looking at character stuff. And I was like, that's great, but I'm not a, I'm not a player. I'm a DM. And I want to see what DM stuff is there. So then I started looking at like chapter two, creating domains of dread and the domains of Ravenloft and, um, you know, reading these. And, and this has something that I think is vital, which is just piles of inspiration. I was reading this and I loved what I read and they had really great stuff in them. Like a lot of these we'll pick on one, which was, I think it was Har- Harakir that I liked. You know, Harakir is, um, you know, your, your very stereotypical sort of Egyptian tomb kind of place, right? And it's all about ancient tombs and deserts. You know, the sands of time buried the desert of realm, empires, fallen pyramids, right? It's really just cool. And it's got like these noteworthy, you know, so it has this nice evocative description of the place and who rules over it and what it's like there right out of the mummy, right? My, my wife and I just watched the mummy. And 
Um, then it's got like these, you know, noteworthy features, right? Here are the known facts, the things that define this campaign is different than every other campaign you're playing in. I love that. Who are the characters and what would they do here, right? What are the settlements and sites? And this is where I, I dig it. They get specific things, right? They talk about the specific things that are in these locations. So, so there's enough here to really kind of build a fun, small campaign if you wanted to and expand it out yourself. I love these one paragraph descriptions of places, right? The pyramids, the labyrinth, the sand suite, great stuff, right? Then a good thing on the boss, this is, this is a pretty cool, that's a pretty cool boss, right? Great, great thing about the boss and, and how the boss operates. And then people complain that like, well, they don't have stat blocks. It's like, they have the mummy lord stat block, right? And, and again, like I would go with the, sure, it's a mummy lord, but go ahead and tweak that dude, right? And he actually has mummy lords working for him. So he's probably tougher than a typical. So the fact that there isn't a stat block for this guy, I'm okay with, because I think I would rather have this description and I can make up, I can, I can tweak the dials, right? I can, I can work with that. So I really dig this. Actually, what it reminds me of is something I adored about Ghost of Saltmarsh. Let's pull back Ghost of Saltmarsh here. Hey, look, it's in alphabetical order. So in the in Ghost of Saltmarsh, there is a section here. This is at Saltmarsh region, I think. The Saltmarsh region section is just in the introduction, right? And there's, you know, it talks all about like kind of different places nearby and what's going on. And then it then it has a section on the Dreadwood, right? And it's not a lot of text. It's like, you know, it's less than, like it's, you know, it's like a couple thousand words at best, right? And it, it, it creates this incredible location that you could use in your, in your salt marsh game or anywhere else. Ain't truly ancient night hag named Granny Nightshade, right? And she's ruled over, you know, it has all this great description of, you know, that she commands like a wizard does, you know, and, you know, speaks with the Dukes of the Nine Hells, Twisted Fortress, this, you know, Castle Spiral, zombie skeletons and shadows threaten her area. She's got a consorts, powerful vampires, struggle, I'm, I'm going for her favor, 23 Oni that act as her personal messengers and enforcers, right? I don't need stat blocks. I don't need a stat block for her. I can make it up, right? But it's got this evocative, like, whole forest that's ruled over by, you know, this super powerful night hag. I love this section to death. I loved it when I was running it. I used like hints of this. They never actually went there, but I used a lot of this in my in my Ghost of Saltmarsh game. And I feel like I feel like Van Richten's guide is a book full of those for all different places. Because it's got the same kind of stuff. It's got like a nice structure to it that talks about like what kind of monsters are here, what kind of cool places there are, what kind of adventures you might have. You know, it's got the gods here. And, and, you know, I don't think every one of them is the same as all the others. You know, the Dark Lord's soul. I don't know what that's about. Hunt for Ka. You know, lots of like stuff you can use here, right? It's just, it's great, right? This, this, just this one section on, on Harkura, on Harakir, Harakir. Really cool. And I want to grab and run. Like, I, I think back to when I was running Storm King's Thunder, and there's two places you could use something like this in Storm King's Thunder. One is you could throw it right in the desert of Anorak and have this whole section in the desert of Anorak and have the domain, the mummy, actually be uh, Imrith, right? Uh, I also, when I ran Tomb of Annihilation, I guess it was before Tomb of Annihilation. It was also when I was running um, Storm King's Thunder where the characters were traveling in the astral plane and they went to a world that had already been devoured by uh, a Sararak. You know, a big desert planet where they, where they destroyed a Sarah, where a Sarah destroyed everything. I could have used this whole section 
as the description of of that world, like what was left of this dead world, right? So it's, you know, you have these domains of dread, but man, you can use them. You don't have to make them part of Ravenloft. You can grab these things and make them other worlds that characters could explore. How cool would it be to like go through an old, you know, some old ancient tomb laboratory and see a see three gates and then the gateways doors open up and you look and in each one you can see one of these worlds and you can describe it from this and the characters can see what's in those worlds and they're like oh my god those are rich and deep and there's like whole other campaigns and all three of those let's get the hell out of here right and then they leave so you can really use this it's just you know very very uh, evocative stuff it's got a, i don't know a dozen or so of them that are filled out in depth uh, another one and this is a secret for my for my frost maiden game uh, another one is Blut, Blutspur. It's a whole thing about a mind flayer realm, right? The shattered minds of a mind flayer realm. I am definitely throwing this into my Frost Maiden game. This is where the mind flayers are from, right? And this is, I think there's so much to use in here. So many details I can fill in my, my world with, you know? I think it'll be really, really cool. Alien artifacts. What are the evidence? You know, stable full of exploded livestock. Ugh suppressed memories you know i can use these suppressed memories right away think about these as a strong start right great stuff just awesome so i can use this right in my rhyme of frostmate game and boy i'll tell you when i get a book like this and i look at it and i go oh i can use that tonight right that's a sign of a good book and then like ooh, i want to run a whole campaign based on that also a really good sign and it has it i love that stuff and when i look and i'm like i haven't even really looked at the rest of these right but I, I read Sire thirteen thirteen the Myron, the Morning Rail right great art look at that piece of art right the ghost train that goes across Sire, you know and it doesn't have a ton of stuff on it I guess that's yeah so like just a paragraph right but just enough to kind of fire up your imagination and we DMs need more of that right we need more just lose yourself in a bunch of worlds and let your brain. You know, this stuff rewires your brain to think about fantastic stuff. And to me, that's so much more important than mechanics, right? That's so much more important than like, I don't know, rules and stuff. It's great. So I love, so, you know, is it the best book that's ever come out? I don't know, like the better than the player's handbook? I don't think so. I mean, the player's handbook redefined D&D, so probably not. But it's pretty effing great, right? It's a good book. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm more eager for this book than uh than i have been for a lot of previous books and i'm and, and as i skim through the dnd beyond version i am very interested in getting the paper book because i just want to grab it and lie on the couch with a coffee and read it for an hour and just let my mind go to new worlds and i think that that is especially for us old folk having the freedom to kind of go to other worlds and letting our imaginations run wild and feeding us seeds of stuff that we can use in our own games is really, really useful. And and beyond just the inspiration, giving us details that we can use. Like a lot of, you know, one of the things about these domains of dread is they have details in them, right? Like, let's pick a random one here. I don't know what this one is. Dark fantasy, psychological horror, domain of decadent delusion, right? And they got cool maps. The details, right? Noteworthy features, settlements and sites, the Dehorner estate. You know, these are great things, right? I love it. Look at this. This is right out of a fairy, you know, dark... Fay, you know, uh, unseely Fay kind of stuff. It's great. I like it. Is it the best thing ever? I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that, but I don't like what, which one of the other books that have come out since the core books do I like better? Well, Eberron is pretty great and I beat the hell out of that Eberron book. I'd probably say I liked Eberron. Eberron I found directly useful and led to two one year long campaigns for me. So I certainly got a good value out of that. Uh, what other, is there other books that came out since then? I don't know. 
Nothing's jumping right out. Xana- so Xanathar, I mean, yeah, you'd say like what has a bigger impact? Xanathar had a bigger impact. And Xanathar is a great book. And it's a super popular book, right? It's like I think the fourth most popular D&D book. And it made a big impact because of the amount of character options it had. Tasha's was disappointing. I, I, I kind of agree. I'm, I'm disappointed with Tasha's for a few reasons. One is I felt like it really dropped the ball on offering good things for a DM. The only thing as a DM that I remember in there that I really go, oh, that's great, are the uh, the, the different random tables for, for magical features. I thought those were great. And there's a good deal of them in there. And I, I that's something that I pull out of Tasha's and I use regularly. So I like that. I pretty much don't like anything else. The character classes and like, man, you want to you want to dive deep. If you want to hear somebody's opinions on the character classes, go listen to the uh, Mastering Dungeons podcast with Teo Sabadia and Sean Merwin, where they do like a 14 episode deep dive into Tasha's and they talk about everything in detail. And so if you want people's two smart dudes, two of the smartest guys in this industry, you want to hear what they have to say about it, go listen to them. I can only give my little anecdotal parts. I'm playing a uh, rune fighter and he's okay, but the abilities are kind of weird and I don't really get a chance to use them very often. Uh, I would much rather play a champion fighter. A champion or a battle master fighter are far more fun. Um, but it's it's got it's thematically flavored. It's just not that fun to play. Um, they're all weird. Like there's, you know, my players who are playing a lot of stuff, there's like, they were all weird. The star druid is weird, and and boy, and then there's some that are just plain broken. And ever, you probably heard me talk about my 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 current sadness with uh, twilight clerics that make the whole they just make everything so much easier. The battles are so much easier with a twilight cleric because they absorb so much damage. And I hear the same thing about the the it's not a life cleric. What's the, the the other cleric is also equally broken, where it's basically giving everybody you know plus five to all rolls all the time you know, and can't really do anything else. I don't think it's order. It's, an, it's something else. It's it's not life cleric, not light cleric, but something like that. Peace cleric, peace domain. I think it's a peace domain. Kalitha uh, Cal- uh, says, as, as a player, I love my twilight cleric. I guarantee your DM does not like the twilight cleric. It's just, Kalitha, uh, Cal- here's, here's my one, here's my one proof that it's overpowered. How often have you used it to turn undead? Uh, how often have you used your, to use it for turn undead instead of for firing up the the temporary hit points and i can tell you like i asked my my friend who's playing a twilight cleric and i'm like when would you ever use it um you know when when would you ever use it to turn undead he's like god never right like turn undead is so much weaker than this i'm like that's kind of the point right the fact that twilight sanctuary is so much better than turn undead um it's it's clearly not not great uh so i teased about 60 so we talked about van richten's we're not going to get to uh here's a cool thing you can strike things out in notion by putting squigglies on either side so we're going to squiggly that uh what grade would i give it i give it an a i give it a good solid a i i'm you know i'm excited you know i want it i'm i'm eager to pay the money for it and and i i like it a lot there's not i mean i look at it and so far there's nothing i look at it and go wow i didn't need that or i don't like what they did with that i think it's great i think it's an outstanding book and i can't wait to get it oh my god level 14 twilight cleric yeah good luck I mean, it essentially means you have to just pile on a lot more damage, right? And what I do is I just add more damage to the monsters. I give them seven, seven-ish more damage when I when I need to, right? Uh, which sucks because it's like I just have to negate the power because it's too powerful otherwise. You're right. You'd think Turn Undead fits nicely into a Twilight Cleric, but it doesn't. So 6E from an indie standpoint, there is all kinds of talk on Twitter and all kinds of talk on Reddit and other places where people are talking about 6E. And it's a bunch of different conversations of, of course, they're going to do a 6E. Nobody knows when. Some people are like, we, you know, Watsy needs to do a 6E to fix all these things that I hate, which is totally not true because end over year over year, D&D has been doing just fine. 
Uh, it's been doing very well, as a matter of fact. But there is questions, and so there are rumors. There are rumors among indie developers that Watsi is starting to think more about 6e. And the problem, so you can't, in my opinion, because it's kind of on the whims of a couple of people. Like think about Wizards of the Coast, and then the people that are in charge of D and D, and the people that would actually give the thumbs up or thumbs down to whether or not they should start on a six E, like really start. Of course, they're thinking about stuff. There's probably like file folders of what we would do. But that doesn't mean they're doing it. Whoever decides that they're going to do it, there's a small number of people. I think Hasbro's pretty hands-off. I bet you Hasbro's leaving it to Wizards of the Coast to decide. And Wizards is probably leaving it to whoever's in charge of D&D. Maybe. But it's a small number of people who are going to decide whether or not to really start in earnest on a 6E. What sandwiches they ate might affect whether or not they decide to do it or not. Right? So it means that it's a relatively unpredictable we, we know they'll do it eventually. We couldn't de determine when. And they can change their minds. They could start and then say, no, you know what? Never mind. We're not going to. The, the, things are too strong. Because it's based on decisions of a small number of people, that makes it a relatively unpredictable field. We don't know when they will do it, and we don't know what they will do when they do it. We all have ideas about what when they might do it or what they might do when they do it. That, that you know, so uh, Zadia brings up, yeah, 5e is too profitable at the moment. Sure. But I don't know that profit is the determining factor, right? I think it's personalities determine whether or not it's it's going to work out or not. So, and if you look back at all of the previous editions and when they came out, it wasn't based on good business choices, right? It was based on whims. So we don't know when they're going to do it and we don't know what they will do when they do it. So for, for because like the topic keeps coming up, my, my, my indie publisher friends and I talk about it and we're like, well, what would we do? Right. How do you know, I, I write books for 5e. Uh, I write a lot of material for 5e. How do I manage that? Right. Do I would I, for example, start to do Sly Flourish's monster manual with a bunch of fifth edition monsters in it now? you know, late into the game. The answer is I'm not doing that because I don't really want to do it anyway. Where should we, Cobalt Press, right? Cobalt Press is going to keep making 5e stuff, you know? So what's the plan, right? Uh, yeah, Hootenheimer says D&D 5e might be a route. Yeah, so this is where we kind of broke down to, like because it's too hard to get our head around a topic. The indie publishers, the, the ones that, friends of mine that I talked to who you know, are involved in this and I, like, what are we going to do? And the answer is nothing, right? We're going to keep doing what we're doing and they'll do what they do and we'll adapt. Right. And that's really all you can do. But the question came up of like, there's really two questions that came up. One is 6E going to be like five or compatible with 5E or not? And two, are they going to offer an OGL for it or not? Is there going to be an open game license and a system reference document like there is with 5E or not? Because 4E didn't have one, right? 4E had no OGL. They had a thing called the GSL, but it was way too limited. And that's what caused Pathfinder to come up. So would they limit? The, or limit or, or remove a, a OGL or SRD from 6E. So, and the answer to that is if there's, there's, the, so these, these two questions, is there an SRD or not? And is 6E going to be backward compatible with 5E? If 6E is com backward compatible with 5E, it doesn't matter if they have an OGL or not because we can write 5E stuff that is compatible with 6E. So then you don't have to worry about it, right? And that's nice. Uh, if it is divergent from, if 6E is a whole new system and they do everything differently again, right? Uh, you know, different from like second E to third edition or third to fourth or fourth to fifth were big differences in all the mechanics and not backward compatible, right? So let's say they do a version like that. If there is an SRD for that, then we can start writing stuff for 6E, just like we did for 5E. Uh, if there isn't, so there's really, uh, if you think about this quadrant, there's only one quadrant 
that doesn't relate to basically we can keep working on on that, which is what if they make a new version of D&D that has totally different mechanics and doesn't have an SRD like they did with fourth? And the answer is we fork, right? Uh, probably given the amount of popularity that 5e has had, think about how many people stuck with third a lot. And third edition isn't nearly as popular as fifth edition is, right? Not nearly. Fifth edition, they said, is the most popular version of D&D ever. And that was a couple years ago when it hadn't even gotten as big as it is now. And now it's even bigger, which means if they decided to do a 6E and they had the hubris to believe that they could do an entirely new 6E with all new mechanics and that all of these wonderful people that we have that love our game are going to come to us, they are fooling themselves. Very likely, certainly a lot of people and maybe a, a whole lot of people will stick with 5E because I've got shelves of books here. There's like, I don't know. $500, $1,000 worth of books sitting on my shelf here. That's all 5e. Probably. Every month is like $50 books and there's a lot of them. I'm going to stick with 5e. I also love 5e. I'm happy. I don't need more. I don't, you know, I don't have any faith that anybody is going to make a version of fifth edition that's is going to be better for me and, and not worse in some other way. Fourth edition had major problems and they were problems that got in the way of my game. Fifth edition has problems. They kind of get in the way of my game, but I've gotten past them and I'm running games and I'm having a great time. So I don't really need a 6E. Now, if they if they take it and they say, we're going to update the player's handbook, there, there are things that they could do. And I don't, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go with one, it's not a prediction, but one thought about where they might go, right? And again, it's the whims of like... 10 or 12 people and them doing what Mike Shea says is, you know, as likely as any other option. But let's say what they wanted to do is we're going to update 5e with a lot of stuff that we've learned over the past six years. We're going to take stuff from like Tasha's, like all of those other little class abilities that um, really are, are quality of life changes. And we're going to put those in there. We're going to tweak monster. Th this is what I would love. We're going to tweak monsters. So they actually work well. We're going to change the encounter balance thing because that we know was a mess. Um, and what else could they do? Um, oh, and the most important thing probably, or a lot, one major important thing is we're going to clean up a lot of the sort of, you know, problematic stuff that we've got in the old version of D&D &D and in the new world does not sit well. Like goblins are all a bunch of cold hearted bastards, every single one of them. And orcs are a bunch of savages, right? And we can, we can get rid of that stuff and, and do things like what we saw with, if you if you saw it, how they're changing the drow a little bit, right? Not, not all the drow are loth worshiping matriarchal sacrificing people. Hey, like how bad is it that the only matriarchy that we really have that's popular in D and D are demon, you know, demon worshipers. That sucks, right? So there's a lot of things that they could that they could clean up in there story-wise, right? And, and and if you want an example of what it would look like, look at how Eberron treats all that stuff. Eberron is such a better system for treating that kind of thing well, that all hags aren't just sitting in a hut waiting to eat children. Three hags are actually ruling over an entire monstrous empire. So take a look at like, you know, you want to see how to treat monsters. Cool. Uh, two books that do it. Uh, Explorer's Guide to Wildmount handles that stuff really well and um eberron handles that stuff really well forgotten realms does not handle that stuff very well so those could be differences uh the tick says uh keep in mind anyone who's watching DD streams reading the subreddits and blogs is a minority of people who play DD and buy books and watsy business decisions will be targeted at them so again i the only thing i would say is you are assuming that business decisions are these purely mechanical well thought out uh well designed ideas and not the 
uh, crazy decisions done by human beings who eat sandwiches and get, you know, get bowel problems when they're in the middle of meetings. And the reality is humans run things, not businesses. And humans are flawed and do things in flawed ways. And so we don't know. That's why it's unpredictable. That's why the stock market is not predictable, right? Stock market is psychology, not business. And yet here we are. Yeah, so it's really hard to predict. But that could be one way they go. I, I would be okay with that. But like pretending, uh, pretending that... 6e is going to be what you want 5e to be is probably flawed too it's when i look at it it's like i liked going from third to fourth i enjoyed it i played fourth but fourth had a lot of problems and then fourth to fifth came out and i love fifth and fifth has problems but i've gotten past them i don't have any faith that anybody's going to make a game that's the perfect mike shea version of D because i have things i want and i'm guessing they're not things most people want i want baked in theater of the mind guidelines right i want to be able to run the entire game with theater of the mind and have instructions on how to do so I'm in the minority on that. Most people are happy with the grid. But I'll tell you, they would turn me off if they said, we're going to go back to grid play like we did with 4E. Oh, God, right? Now, I don't think they're going to because my understanding is almost everybody in Wizards of the Coast plays Theater of the Mind. So they're probably not going to go that way. Anyway, it's my big rant. So my, my, the, the, the main thing, uh, how dare you ruin my hopes for 6th edition with your logic? Well, I'll tell you, yeah, right, because uh, you know I'm not here to make you feel good, right? I'm, I'm, I don't know. What's my job? I don't know what my job is. Help you run better D&D games. But the reality is when I think about it, I'm like, I don't have any faith that 6E is going to be better than 5E. It's going to have all new... I'll give you a good example. Somebody thought the Twilight Cleric was a good idea, right? Somebody thought that that was ready to go. And it's published now. And now we look at it and it's like, wow, that was broken as shit. Like, if that same person had been also doing it for the Player's Handbook and put that in the Player's Handbook, we'd have a broken cleric in the Player's Handbook, right? At least this way I could say, yeah, I'm not playing with the Tasha classes. So, (laughs) you know... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, somebody somebody thought the mass summoning rules were good as written too, right? So, you know, no, there's no news. Sunjammer, there's no news on 60. This is just me pontificating. There's nothing about it. Um, but I can tell you as a publisher and how the publishers feel about it is A, we stay resilient. B, we write things. One, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a strategy, a sly flourish strategy on my, my what I'm doing, right? And, and how I'm treating things, which is the stuff that I'm writing, is it as useful for older versions of the game as it is for fifth? And if the answer is I could use that same stuff for second or third or you know fourth or, or, or OD&D or anything like that, then it's resilient, right? Then the products I'm making are resilient. One thing about Return, Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master works well, is it works well for pretty much all of the versions of D&D. It was written around fifth, and, and, and I think there's probably little bits of fifth in there. But I'm pretty sure that will work with six because it works with fourth, and it works for third, and it works for second and first, and it works for other RPGs totally. Uh, the Lazy DM workbook is more fourth, more fifth edition specific, and I would probably have to write a new one of those if this if this 6E came out and if I was writing for 6E. But the next book I'm working on, Lazy DM Companion, is probably going to be about 80% system agnostic. And there'll probably be a few pages of it, a few of the guidelines that are in there are going to be 5E specific. But most of it is going to be, you could use it with any edition. So the nice thing there is if 6E is using the same bones as 5E, and we hope that they, I would hope that they do, then those books will still work, right? And I could probably put like a works with 6E label on the cover and, and everything will be fine. Uh, but we'll see. So the answer is we'll see. We don't know. You know, maybe they'll switch to a D100 system. I doubt it. I heard this is where like I, I just, you know, I just look at the ceiling like, oh man, I got to get off Twitter. I was on Twitter and a guy was like, I can't wait for 6E. And my, my biggest hope is that they get rid of classes and races. And you're like, that's not, I mean, like, I don't want to be like the old grognard, but classes, 
and I get like races to ancestries and I get the idea of like, you know, how, if you took ancestries and cultures, the, the, the book ancestries and cultures from the uh, drive-through, which I think is, it's been a best-selling, uh, isn't there? Is, yeah, there it is. Ancestry and culture, alternative race for 5e, right? Great book, really popular, adamantine bestseller, right? Really good, really good book. Take the ideas from this. And if that's how you treat races in D&D, you're on board. But getting rid of classes? Oh, they were like, getting. let's get rid of races, classes, and levels. And you're like, go play Fate, man. And there's like, and I'm not bashing other games. I got a bunch of other games sitting here on the shelf, but there are other games. And that's certainly not D&D. So I'm like, well, I don't think, yeah, they said, no, no, I don't like races, classes, and levels. And I hope 6th edition gets rid of that stuff. Oh my God, right? So that's when I'm like, why am I reading people like this? Like, this is, this is like, they should, you know, if you want to write about D&D on Twitter, there ought to be a quiz. No, that's gatekeeping. You can write anything you want. But yeah, I certainly don't. I certainly don't need to read it. So we'll see. I don't. I don't have any faith that they will do what I want them to do. Right. I don't have any. Uh, we'll see what they come out. I don't have faith that what they will come out with won't have problems, like every version of D and D has, because every version has had it. I can hope that they go certain ways. I hope it's backward compatible because Five E is great, and I think they will capitalize off the fact that lots of people have Five E books. Um, I kind of hope they don't do it. Right, which is sort of like you know, regressive of me, but like I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, and if they're putting out books like Van Richten's Guide, great. That is my thought about Sixy. And if you're a publisher, if you're like a DM's Guild publisher or anything like that, don't worry about it. Just keep writing. I wouldn't change your strategy around a whole lot. But I'll tell you, like you know, you want to follow a model that works well. Raging Swan Press. They have a Patreon and they make a lot of books. And they do it for System Neutral and 5e and Pathfinder. And they have awesome stuff. And they write a ton of it. And their art, look at that art. It's cool. God, that's scary. Look at that. It's disemboweled. Ugh, gory. What a piece of art. Tons of material, tons of places. This person is going to keep, you know, knocking it out of the park regardless. This is like, you know, wow. Watsy does not have a handle on people like this. And it's great, right? Mac, you can get a free copy of the 180-page Thingonomicon by joining us on Patreon. Go do that. Go join them on Patreon. Awesome stuff. Great, great material. Go get it. Go check out Raging Swan Press. They also have, a, if you want to like sample some of their, their better wares, go to uh, Drive Through. go to Raging Swan Press. Uh, Shadowed Keep, I will, I, I think I gave a pitch for this yesterday. Shadowed Keep of the Borderlands is a homage to Keep on the Borderlands and... Um, Man, I keep forgetting the name of the adventure. The adventure that's in uh, the first uh, Village of Hamlet. It's an homage to that. It's an 90-page book, black and white, stat blocks, art, maps. Really cool adventure. It was heavily playtested. I think he's worked on this a bunch. Really cool book. Worth the 12 bucks. I think worth the... It's it's $22 to get the PDF and softcover version. It's worth it. It's It's great stuff. Go pick that up. Um, and that's what I mean. Like it, you know, I'm jealous, right? I'm, 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 I'm jealous is probably strong. I'm, I'm, there's, there's, uh, keeping the borderlands really cool stuff and, and, and in, inspires me to make stuff like that. So I'm, I, I dig it and I'm glad because it's like, it doesn't matter what wizards does. Raging Swan's going to hammer, knock it out of the park. And there's a hundred other raging swans out there getting ready to knock stuff out of the park, regardless of what wizards decides. So let's not worry about it. That's my, that's my final word on that.